All right, well, tonight we are going to be in the book of Jude, uh, and you can find the book of Jude, the whole book of Jude, on a single page in your Bible, <laughs> page 1027 in the Pew Bible, and we will be looking at verses 5 through 10. So the book of Jude, verses 5 through 10, hear the word of the Lord. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they like, they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. Thus ends the, re- the, the reading of God's holy word. So I came across a quote uh, from a character in a comedy TV show years ago about leadership in the workplace. The office uh, that he worked in was in search of a new boss, and the employee said to the camera that was uh, interviewing him, he said, I got away with everything under the last boss, and it wasn't good for me at all. So I want guidance. I want leadership. But but don't just, like, boss me around, you know? (laughs) Lead me when I'm in the mood to be led. That is is very much in line with the modern attitude toward authority when it comes to God. Be my Lord when I am in the mood to have you be my Lord. But we ask, you know, how does God express his authority today? We certainly see it in nature in a very general kind of way with uh, natural disasters and storms and volcanic eruptions and things like that. Uh, But we also see it, uh, especially in God's word, in his commands, in in the kindness of God that the scriptures say is meant to lead us to repentance. But unfortunately, many in the church have abandoned the word of God as their sole authority. This is certainly true of the world, we could say, but Jude is not writing a letter to the world. He is writing a letter to the church. He's writing a letter to us. And in this passage of his letter, Jude gives us three warnings from the past, and then he applies those warnings to the context of the local church. And so we'll look at each of how he does that. And so we'll first begin with his three warnings, uh, to, uh, and then we'll proceed to how he applies those to the church Today, So in verses 5 through 7, we have the three warnings to the church that come from the past. And, and, they, and each warning has a message. And so the first warning comes in verse 5. And the message is, all unbelief will be destroyed. All unbelief will be destroyed. Jude brings up the most familiar of Old Testament events, 
the exodus. Uh, There he says a great deliverance, even a salvation, was wrought by God for the people of God. But afterwards he makes clear that God destroyed those who did not believe. What he's referring to is Numbers 14, when Israel rebelled against the command of God, and and they refused to go into the promised land, and in response... God condemned that generation of people 20 years and older to die in the wilderness. Now, what is interesting here is that, as our ESV uh, translates it, it says that Jude says, Jesus did this. Now, if you look at other translations, like the King James Version, you'll you'll see that it says, the Lord did this. Why is the difference? Why does ESV say Jesus? Why does the King James and other translations say Lord? Well, Basically, it's because uh, the earliest manuscripts that we have of this passage in Jude have some saying Jesus and others saying the Lord. And it's kind of evenly split. They're both, both uh, particularly two manuscripts, the earliest ones. Uh, one says Jesus, one says Lord. So, uh, and, uh, and Now, you don't lose anything if you go with Lord or Jesus. Uh, we see in Paul, that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he argues in that passage that, that the examples of the faithless generation of the wilderness uh, are an example for the church today as a warning to us to not fall into the similar sin of unbelief and sexual immorality. And he says in that same passage that the rock that the people drank from in the wilderness was Christ. So there's no, nothing wrong with this interpretive method that says it was Jesus who destroyed those who didn't believe uh, in the wilderness, or, or, the, or if you want to go with the other version uh, that says the Lord. Um, the point here is that Jude is not doing something unusual or unique here. Rather, he is assuming the lordship of the second person of the Trinity in affirmation of what Jesus said about himself. The Old Testament is all about him. The actual point that Jude is making here is to warn the church against falling into a similar kind of grievous sin after experiencing the grace of God. It's interesting, I had my first, uh, so my second semester of Greek um, in seminary, which was that, so you took Greek in the summer and then the fall that you started in earnest your classes and you started Greek too. And so I had a teaching assistant um, uh, named Brandon Crow who is now a New Testament scholar at Westminster Theological Seminary. <laughs> so he was very sharp guy, very bright, uh, obviously. And so he went on. So it's, it's funny to go read. I have his commentary on, 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 first, on, on, on these letters, which is really neat. Uh, to be like, I know that guy. So, <laughs> but in his commentary on this, he writes, quote, Whatever questions we have about the wilderness generation, the basic point of Jude here is rather clear. The notorious wilderness generation serves not as an example of perseverance in faith, but of presuming upon God's grace and living lives of unbelief and disobedience, resulting not in blessing, but destruction. End quote. So what we're talking about here is not the same thing as like struggling against doubt in your life or struggling against un, you know, unbelief, not believing enough in the promises of God. It's not about losing salvation. It is, it is about, as, as Brandon writes, as Dr. Crow <laughs> writes, uh, it's, it, that it's, about li- it's about living lives in which we assume the grace of God 
while acting out in deliberate disobedience against God's commands without repentance. That's what it is. And so there's a warning. Unbelief of that nature will be destroyed. Second, the second uh, warning comes in verse 6. And the warning is this. Those who throw off authority, even if they're angels, will be judged. Those who throw off authority, even if they're angels, will be judged. Jude references angels that didn't stay within their position of authority, but instead left their place, presumably, in rebellion against God. Now, it's not totally clear here what Jude is referring to, but there are two main options that are suggested by, uh, by, the, schol- by the scholarship uh, saying this is what he is talking about. Um, first, there are some that argue, and there's some strong arguments in their favor, uh, that saying that this is a reference to First Enoch, uh, which was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, it's considered Jewish apocrypha. So it's, it's, it's a Jewish writing that, it, that, that was written after the close of the Old Testament canon. And so in First Enoch, the author interprets the events of Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4, um, which talks about the Nephilim, the, the giants. Right? And that's a confusing passage in Genesis. It's hard to know exactly what's going on in Genesis 6. The flood comes after that and kills everybody anyway. So you're kind of like, I don't need to worry about that. Um, well, basically, uh, first Enoch says that uh, the, the Nephilim were essentially the children of angels who had rebelled against God and, uh, and, taken human, and, and who had uh, taken human wives and produced children, which were the Nephilim. Now, um, if this is true... Um, Jude is not here clearly referencing the whole story to confirm all the specific details as if they're actually accurate of what 1 Enoch says. Um, Some have suggested that he is referring to 1 Enoch, but he's doing it simply to illustrate like a pastor might quote from the Lord of the Rings or from Narnia um, to to illustrate a point. Um, So that may be going on. Uh, so, so the first option is uh, understanding what Jude is referencing here is a reference to First Enoch. The second option is that Jude is referring to the great rebellion of the angels against the Lord that was led by the devil at some undisclosed moment in history. The Bible doesn't tell us when Satan fell with the angels, uh, exactly how that worked. There's no chapter in the Bible that, that describes it. There are certain passages that people will point to and say, this talks about it, but that's what it is. But that's the, all those passages are highly debated. So if anyone comes to you and says, I can tell you, just know they can't tell you. Okay? Uh, they're very convinced, but they, they can't actually tell you. Um, but again, a lot, of this stuff, a lot of the stuff in this passage can be really kind of like eye-catching and you know, kind of mind wet, but you won't, don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Okay? We don't want to get lost in here. So Because really, uh, really, you can pick either option Honestly, I lean towards the rebellion, uh, but if you, if you think it's, he's quoting from First Enoch, that's fine. Uh, remember, I remind you that Paul quotes, quotes from, uh, um, now this is, he quotes from at least two pagan poets uh, on different occasions. I mean, Paul will quote from pagan literature uh, in order to get his point across, and so this is not uh, um, yeah, Epimenides, that's one of them. Uh, but, but, that's, uh, um, but that's not unusual. So... Uh, so the, the reference here to this, this story about angelic rebellion shows that even angels who throw off the God's authority do not escape judgment. 
And if angels will not escape judgment for rebellion against God's authority, how much more will false teachers and those who follow them be held accountable by the Lord? That is Jude's point. The third warning comes in verse 7. And the warning is this. Wickedness will be met with eternal fire. Wickedness will be met with eternal fire in verse 7. We're in more familiar territory here because the third example is about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now these deserve special mention today because there has been a strange, I call it a strange uh, uh, teaching regarding exactly the nature of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, now, and, and there are two things in the ancient world that are true that we need to bear in mind here. First, that, and we've talked about this in other sermons and other times brought this up, but hospitality to strangers in the ancient world was considered not just a valuable thing, it was a sacred duty. Because there were no holiday inns and motel sixes, right? So in order for people to survive, they needed the hospitality of, of others to save them from being robbed, to, to make sure they had provisions, all these things. It was a dangerous thing to travel in the ancient world. And so, uh, and so hospitality to strangers was a sacred duty in the ancient world. And secondly, biblical writers especially tended to treat uh, uh, sexual things euphemistically, such as Adam knew his wife and she bore him a son. You know, we all know that Adam wasn't just like doing a get-to-know-you session with Eve, Right? Uh, so they were, they were physically intimate and they produced a child. Well, why does this matter? Because there are many, especially in theological, theologically liberal circles, who have tried to argue that, that, that we ought to stop citing Sodom and Gomorrah as an example or as a certain example of God's judgment on homosexuality or homosexual acts. They argue that the primary problem was uh, in, in they, their argument. I'm going to give you their argument, okay? Their argument. Now I'll tell you why it's wrong. <laughs> so let me, let me give you the argument here. The argument is that uh, the, the problem of Sodom and Gomorrah was primarily of wickedness due to a gross lack of hospitality, which was a sacred duty in the ancient world. Some even go so far to argue that when the men come to Lot's home and demand that he bring out the men who we know are angels, but they thought were men, um, uh, so that they could know them, uh, was where these men were simply demanding to find out if these men were spies. They just wanted to get to know them, like, like relationally. You know, um, The problem, they say then, is not homosexual activity or wickedness, but simply a wicked level of inhospitality that should lead us today, if we call ourselves Christians, to do more to welcome the stranger in our own midst, which would, which would usually apply to various oppressed types of individuals or groups. To back this up, they will often cite rabbis from the past who will largely argue that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged due to a lack of, lack of hospitality um, without much mention of sexual immorality. And this is true in terms of the rabbinic literature. And now the, heart, the, the thing about this is, it, along with so, much, so many arguments that are ultimately false, is that there is a measure of truth to it. Okay? In fact, we do not disagree that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of their lack of hospitality. Going to a neighbor's house to sexually assault and kill their out-of-town guests 
would be the height of inhospitality. But at the core of that inhospitality in Sodom and Gomorrah was sexually immoral behavior, particularly homosexual immorality. The Bible likes to speak in euphemisms, as I mentioned earlier. And this is relatively true of rabbinic literature as well. Simply because rabbis of the past didn't uh, you know, talk about the lack of hospitality as a shorthand uh, doesn't, to cover that whole scenario doesn't mean that you had a bunch of progressive rabbis in the past excusing sexually immoral, immoral acts. Further, the biblical testimony regarding Sodom and Gomorrah is crystal clear that the wickedness of these two cities while not exclusively or exhaustively about sexual morality, was certainly largely about the perverse sexual immorality that had gripped the, the, uh, the, um, gripped the people there. Even Jude does this for us in his letter. Contra the popular talking points of today... Uh, in, the, in rejection of the sexual immorality, which was common in the ancient world. Um, uh, and and uh, he, he says that the, the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah was that they were indulging in sexual morality and they were pursuing unnatural desires. Some in the church might be lulled into these kinds of lies that God allows or approves of such worldliness and sin, but he does not. In such rebellion against God, will end in the judgment of fire, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not a chest-bumping moment. It's a tragic moment where people will use the scriptures and twist them all around in order to deceive themselves into fire, in the fire of God's judgment. Now, I want us to know these three examples, these three warnings that Jude gives us. It highlights that no one is exempt from the consequences of sin. Not the Israelites who were saved out of the exodus in their unbelief. Not the angels who were created in holiness and in their rebellion against God's authority. And not the wicked Gentiles and their hedonistic indulgences into sin in the flesh. All three were judged by the Lord. Only one was shown a measure of mercy. And that was God's covenant. And so now we come to the point in, uh, in our second point, which is applying these warnings to the church today. And we're actually going to go back to the very first part of verse 5 and, and talk about the necessity of reminders. You know, we have reminders on our phones now, on our watches. We can tell our phones to remind us of stuff. Isn't that great? Hey, Siri, remind me. Of, you know, <laughs> so that's awesome. I, I, I assume I don't have a smartphone, but... Um, <laughs> Um, but I have a, I have a, I have a Timex, so I use that. So, um, I have a calendar. I have my, my laptop does a great job. But Jude says he wants to remind his readers of something that they once knew completely, but apparently they have begun to forget it. Now, he doesn't seem to be chiding them for this. He doesn't seem to be going after them for this. Um, and, to, and, and in a fallen world, we tend to forget stuff. Uh, we, we tend to, uh, everyone talks about it as we get older, just start forgetting everything, right? Uh, and we tend to drift 
from the truth of God because we have so many things that we're battling against in the world and inside of ourselves. Uh, A contemporary scholar who's written a lot on the book of Jude, Richard Bauckham, he, he wrote that reminding and remembering are essential for Christians, particularly because our faith is rooted in God's acts in history. And so we need to be reminded of what God has done. We need to know, we need to remember, because we are prone to forget. And therefore, it should not shame us to be reminded of something that may be familiar to us or or even seem wholly new, as long as it is the truth of God. Reminders from God, even warnings, are are actually uh, one of the methods, particularly with warnings, that's one of the methods God uses to keep Christians on the path and to leave the wicked without excuse. What this means is that that perhaps we are being tempted by doubts or the pleasure of sin, and then we read Jude's warnings, how no one will escape judgment for sin, not even angels, and we are shaken out of our sinful stupor. Now let me ask you, if you know a Christian who who said that, that was their experience, I was really wanting to do this sin over here, and all of a sudden I came across this passage in Jude and talked about how he judged Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and, I, and, 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 I, you know, and, and it freaked me out. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, Lord, for even wanting to do it and, and, and I didn't do it and I, and I tried to wait. Is that a sign of being a Christian? Or is that not a Christian? I would say it's a sign of being a Christian. It's interesting, one uh, um, Christian theologian from the 500s, uh, it's, uh, I, had to, I had to practice saying his name, and I'll probably butcher it here, um, Ecumenius, um, sort of an O, uh, but uh, he wrote uh, how Jude's letter here warns off uh, many heretics showing that, by showing that there, by his very use of the Old Testament, showing the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And, that, and secondly, that sin will be judged. And he, and he went on to name several heretical movements that had, that had risen in, in, in his own time, not that recently, uh, in which Jude refutes. In other words, Jude reminder, Jude's reminder here helps the church, helps protect the church. I mean, if real Christians don't need reminders, then why do we have Bibles? Why don't we just have the Holy Spirit? There's been movements who have said that. We don't need the scriptures. We have the Holy Spirit. Right? Didn't Jeremiah 31 say we won't need to be taught anymore? Why do we need the Bible for it? We've got the Holy Spirit. Right? Our Bible's just for the newbies. You know, when you get to a certain level, you don't need your Bible anymore. The church needs to be reminded and be glad when we are warned off of danger. We may have that sense of guilt because we really wanted to sin. We were really hoping we would get the chance to sin. But then God warned us off of it. But let us be relieved that he warned us off of it. And we don't have to deal with the consequences of that act. Secondly, we can apply these, um, and I say we can, Jude does, apply these examples to the nature of false teachers as he does in verses 8 and 9. Jude applies these uh, three examples to the false teachers uh, who, he says, rely upon dreams, defile the flesh, and reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones, likely would be spiritual beings, uh, angels, and even, and even God. 
That is, false teachers rely upon dreams over against God's authoritative word, the scriptures. They tell you that they have a direct line from God that supersedes the scriptures. I mean, I know that your Bible say this, but God told me in a dream last night. And wouldn't God's fresh revelation right in front of you be better than some old book in your lap? This is actually how Islam and Mormonism were born. By men going off into caves or putting their faces into hats with magical stones and discovering new revelations of the divine. But this is also true that those who, uh, that, that those who deny God's word They'll, they'll deny God's word, but then they'll, on the, on, and with one breath, and then the second breath declare that they have peace with God because they feel it. False teachers and their followers, he says, pollute the body. Why? Because they reject God's word, and in doing so, they indulge in sin. And this isn't just, I'm not just applying this to liberal Christian churches either here. There are far too many so-called conservative, traditional, evangelical pastors who have lived double lives, who have taught heresy with, uh, that's coded in, in traditional uh, orthodox language uh, so as to lead others astray. It is a very active problem today. There was literally, uh, not that long ago, it was a, what, four, three, four years ago, a pastor in the Chicago area who apparently had uh, sought out someone who would kill a church member for him for money. Like, talk about, talk about church conflict. You guys putting a hit out on people, right? And this was a pastor of a megachurch in that area. You have another pastor in Georgia who several years back said, you know, suggested that we, could, we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And just recently, it seems to be an unhitching himself from the whole thing. Because uh, of these things, because of relying upon our own individual authority and the authority of our emotions to, 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 uh, to, uh, to rule us, they reject the authority of God. Uh, this could mean, uh, as Jude says, uh, this could mean they reject secular authority and, and by doing so cause a bad name uh, to come upon uh, the church and Christians. That's, uh, that certainly is a possibility. It certainly means they reject God's authority. Some claim authority by dreams, like Benny Hinn literally claims that he had a dream where basically Jesus came to him and said, you're the man, right? And everybody needs to listen to you and give you money. And, and he says, yeah, you need to listen to me and give me money. And, you know, he had a moment where he got honest a few years back, but I don't think he's just stick, stuck with it. But far more inside the church and even outside of the church, as I mentioned just a moment ago, make their feelings, their emotions, the authority over God's word. I know God's word says this, but I feel this, and that's what matters. I have to be honest about self. I have to have my voice. It's like, well, what about God's voice? And let us remind ourselves that the fifth commandment abides for a reason. And it's not just because the parents want respect from their kids. It is because respecting authority 
is ultimately about respecting God's authority. And it begins when we are born, where we learn to do it directly with our family, with our parents. And we cannot say, whether we are a child or whether we are an adult, I will disrespect the authority above me, but I will respect God. Because God has placed that authority over us. Even Paul apologized for disrespecting the high priest when the high priest was, in very diplomatic terms, a jerk. Because he said, the the word of God says, you should not disrespect the leader of your people. You shall not speak against the leader of your people. We should learn from Paul's example as believers to be respectful even as we are critical. You can be critical, but yet being respectful and honoring God through the fifth commandment. Finally, Jude says that they blaspheme the glorious ones. This uh, uh, likely means they were telling, telling uh, uh, stories uh, about their dreams, likely about angels that were false, claiming they were divine visions and dreams that certainly contradicted God's word. And to do so is to blaspheme. This would explain why in verse 9, Jude makes reference to this interaction between the archangel Michael and the devil. And you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. (laughs) Nope. Uh, So where did this come from? What is Jude referring to here? So well, many have argued that Jude is quoting here, or he is at least citing a Jewish apocryphal story called the Assumption of Moses in which uh, it is a story uh, supposedly about the devil trying to claim Moses' body after he died. Um, he might, Jude might be citing this story, but here's the problem. We don't have a surviving copy of the Assumption of Moses, so we don't know, and which is, I was perplexed as to why certain scholars were very confident uh, about their, you know, that this is it. Um, Michael the Archangel is referenced in the book of Daniel, at least three times, and once in Revelation 12, verse 7. Michael's response to the devil, we should note, is the exact same response that the angel of the Lord gave to the devil in Zechariah 3, 2, where the devil was accusing Joshua the high priest before the Lord. Now, the body of Moses here uh, could be understood figuratively. It could be understood literally talking about the corpse of Moses. It could also be under, understood figuratively, um, like the like the Abraham's bosom, you know, like the, and so to say, the body of Moses could figuratively represent the people of God, and though this it actually could be a reference to Zechariah's vision in Zechariah chapter three. We're st- it's still uncertain, you know. This is like wherever I land on here, there's not someone going to die for in the faith, right? To be like, you, you, you know, your life or this. I was like, okay, I'll go with you on this. Right? I'm not that. I'm not that married to uh, one of these positions. Um, But Jude's point here is that even in the case of the archangel disputing with the devil, the archangel Michael did not claim to himself uh, an authority that he did not have, but rather was always and totally submissive to God by saying to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. And here's a point especially, I think, that applies to the elders of the Lord's church. Because at times in our Presbyterian meetings, when we gather as as a group, and we have Central Mississippi, Mississippi Valley, we gather together, 
And there have been some very painful moments where we have had to, we've had no other choice but to excommunicate a pastor. And such judgments like that are uttered with reverence and trembling and tears. And they ought to be so. With the acknowledgement that there is a path of return by the road of repentance. But there is not, but we cannot take to ourselves an authority that we do not own for ourselves. Or, Jude says, we are in, in, in effect acting like the false teachers here. Acting like these angels and throwing off the authority of God. And finally, as Jude applies these warnings to the church in verse 10, he warns that ignorant blasphemy leads to knowing destruction. Ignorant blasphemy leads to knowing destruction. Mind your words, Jude reminds us. For these false teachers blab about what they do not understand, namely angels and spirits in the spiritual world. And in doing so, they blaspheme God. And I've run into folks like this. I'm sure you have. Where they come to you and they, they're going to tell you all about the angels. And you're like, where did you get this? You know, where did you get this? I've shared the story before. I was in a Starbucks. And I've always maintained if you want to read, meet weird, weird people, read your Bible in a Starbucks. Okay? Um, okay? All right? You're going to find somebody weird. All right? So guy comes up to me, starts talking to me. And he's, oh, yeah, start talking. And he's like, oh, you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. Great, great, great. Talking to me. And he starts talking about, you know, I think the devil's really misunderstood. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I said, yeah. Because he's a little, you know, people think of him like a pitchfork and, you know, running around, you know, causing mischief. He's mischievous, you know, kind of thing. And he said, yeah. And he said, you know, and I really think that the devil and God are really kind of friends, you know? I was like, you lost me there, buddy. I was like, no, I don't know that. And he started going, yeah. He said, you know, I just really think they actually, they have more in common than, you know, and they, and they really, they, they actually get along a bit more than we think. And, you know, it's kind of, they, you know, and then, uh, and, and I'm like, did, did you read this somewhere? Like, where, where did you get this? Is it in the scripture? He's like, no, I just thought it in my head. And I was like, all right, well, you should have less of that and more of reading your Bible. Okay. Uh, but, and, 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 but as, as silly as that is, I've also met people that are very serious in the demonology and angelology and, and they can go on and I've, well, so they've read a lot of Jewish apocryphal literature and they can tell you all about it, all the stuff that they're going off. And I'm like, do you not read the New Testament? Do you not read the warnings in there about going off into this la-la land, into, in, not a la-la land, this, the, 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 the realm of spiritual warfare is real. But we do not know about it. The information we have largely keeps us in the dark about it in the New Testament. And so we ought to be very careful before proclaiming bold statements about the certitude that we have about this, that, or the other thing. If we, ha if we, we need to be bold where the scripture is clear and not bold where it's ambiguous and fascinating to us. He says they go on blaspheming about God, talking about things they don't understand. But they are destroyed by what they instinctively know, by with what that which even unreasoning, unreasonable animals know. That there's a God who is holy, who will judge the world. They understand it instinctively, and they seek to numb themselves to it. 
to ignore it, to distract their minds from it. For a holy God gets in the way of a lot of sinful pleasures. So what are we to do with these warnings? Well, for one thing, and the rather obvious thing, is we need to listen to them. We need to take them seriously. We don't need to lead into places where we think we're going to lose our salvation. or that. That's not the point. That's not Jude's point. But if our theology is leading us to ditch parts of God's word so we can indulge in that which God detests, then we have a problem. More generally, we need to reaffirm God's word as the authority over us. We need to respect the authority that God has placed over us, whether it is our parents, if we are kids, uh, elders in the church, or even the secular authorities. We need to be wary, oh so wary, of trusting in dreams or visions, especially, especially if they contradict the word of God. In the Reformed world, we like to talk about the doctrine sola scriptura, or scripture alone. And one quote I always give in our membership class when we talk about this uh, sola uh, is that, the, is, is, and I'm going to paraphrase it, that the great danger with the doctrine of sola scriptura is not misunderstanding it, it is forgetting it and replacing that authority with another. And since God has revealed himself in his word, let us heed his warnings because his warnings are not meant to terrify us and just to leave us in a state of just irrational fear. They're meant to bring us back to himself, to keep us on the path, to direct us back to the gospel of grace and his fatherly love and guidance. Just as a loving father will uh, will give stern warnings, will give out discipline to bring their child back in, so God gives us commands and warnings to heed. So let us heed his warnings that we may walk by faith and joy and peace in the name of the Savior, his Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us warnings. Lord, we, because of our own flesh, because of the way the world is, especially living in a country where there's so many comforts and delights and distractions at our very fingertips that we carry in our pockets. Uh, Lord, there's so much available to us. It is very easy to get lost and to become numb and to lose our way. Lord, we thank you for your warnings that you give us in your word. Warnings that confront us with the reality and evil of sin. But, not war- but warnings that don't leave us in despair, but drive us to repentance. And where do we find, when we are driven to our knees in repentance, what do we find? We find mercy and grace and love that comes from you through your blessed Son. And so, Lord, we thank you that you keep your church, you correct your church, you discipline your church, you warn your church. We pray, Lord, that we, that we would heed those warnings, that we would give you thanks for your discipline, and that we would give you praise. Even if it's painful for a moment, we know that it will bear fruit in eternity. And we pray this all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.
Well, let's respond now to God's word by standing and singing together our final hymn tonight, Trust and Obey, hymn 297.